Over the last couple of months, we've been going kind of through the book of Matthew. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And so in case some of you uh, were not here last week or just as a reminder, uh, I kind of want to catch us up. We come in our journey through the book of Matthew into the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. So, so far, we've witnessed the triumphal entry uh, and then Jesus kind of violently cleansing the temple. And then uh, he begins healing and teaching in it. He comes back the next day uh, where he is confronted by a group of religious leaders made up of Pharisees, elders of the people, and scribes. Uh, we said last week most likely this was a representation of the ruling council of the Jews, uh, the Sanhedrin. And so uh, this confrontation uh, centers on the issue of his authority to do the things he has been doing over the last couple of days. So... After turning the question from where did his authority come from to whether they could tell the difference between heavenly and earthly authority, Jesus gives them a parable about two sons and their response to authority to their father. This is what we looked at last week, right? You have a son that uh, says he will not go, and then he goes, and then you have a son that says he will go uh, but does not. And so he applies that to their refusal to recognize John the Baptist's ministry. And after doing that, he gives them another parable uh, commonly known as the parable of the tenants, and that's where we are this morning. Uh, maybe your Bible says a parable of the wicked tenants or uh, something along those lines, but this is the parable that Jesus gives. And by far, this is the most allegorical parable we've looked at so far in Matthew. And what that means is that every detail of this parable uh, is important. Every detail relates to a portion in the real world. Now, a lot of times in parables, uh, we are careful to find the main point, uh, and not read too much into the details. We realize that Jesus is telling a parable or story uh, with a main point. And so, for example, I talked about this with somebody this week, uh, talking about uh, this parable of the two sons. The point is easy to see. The one who truly obeys is the one who does the will of the Father, not the one who says he will. So we do not dig deeper looking for further meaning in the identity of the two sons, or what one's rebellion means for his sonship, or in the fact that Jesus uses a vineyard over a field, not in the details of the statement, go work in the vineyard today. Many times, if we try to push too much on the parable, we'll miss the forest for the trees, right? We'll get so wrapped up in the details that we miss the point. And so uh, I always stress in parables that there's one point, that we, we try to find that point. But on this particular occasion, as one of the, the few of the last parables Jesus uses, he feels it with details that help us understand it better. Almost every detail is both important and key to our proper understanding of what Jesus is saying. It serves as kind of an overview of God's dealing uh, with his people from a prophetic view. And so Jesus is going to talk to, uh, kind of through the idea of prophets, the way that God has dealt with his people. And so all of this, of course, will become evident as we make our way through the parable. So if you have your Bibles, open there now, Matthew 21. Uh, but before we get to it, we have to ask, why did Jesus give this parable in the first place, right? He gives the parable of the two sons, illustrating their failure to recognize the authority of John and the hypocrisy in their speech versus their lives when it comes to obeying God. With one parable, now he gives another parable uh, immediately following the first. And so what I, what I wrote is Jesus seemingly wants him to understand that failing to respond to the authority of John and now himself is bigger than the rejection of these individuals. 
Jesus is going to illustrate through this parable that rejection of their authority is rejection of the kingdom of God, which, as we will see, has dire consequences for these religious leaders as well as those under their spiritual leadership. Now, far from being just an historical lesson, right, where we're going to learn about this interaction between Jesus and these Pharisees, uh, this is a warning for us as well. If there were consequences for their rejection of the kingdom, we should make sure that we are not rejecting it as well. So my prayer today is, as we better understand in Jesus' condemnation of their rejection, we will also be able to answer the question, why does anyone reject the kingdom of God? And so with that question in mind, I'm going to give you this morning three failures that contribute to the rejection of the kingdom. So let's get into the text this morning. Matthew 21, verse 33. And we're going to read through uh, the whole thing, and then we'll go back. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son saying to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus transitions to a question. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And so let's stop there for a moment. That is our text. That is the parable that Jesus tells and then applies it with that verse 43. Therefore, because of these things, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so with that before us, I want to show you the first failure that leads to rejection of the kingdom. If you're taking notes, write this down. We reject the kingdom of God when we fail to understand who it belongs to. And so there's such a simple, simple statement, but as we look into the parable, we see uh, this is exactly what led to their rejection. In the parable, the tenants rejected the owner's attempts to collect what is due to him because they have a distorted view of ownership. In their minds, the owner is gone, and Luke says as a detail that he's been gone for some time. And so I think the idea, I was reading a commentary, that it would take up to about five years for a fresh planted vineyard to produce enough fruit to have a crop. And so he has been gone for some time. And in the meantime, they have been working this land day in and day out, and therefore they think it belongs to them. And if he will not recognize it, they will take it by force. And so he sends his servants and they rebuke them and rebel them, uh, repel them and they, they kill them one by one, refusing to give up one ounce of the wine produced from this vineyard. 
Now, it's easy to look at them and, and scratch our head, isn't it? Like, didn't they know what they were signing up for when they leased the vineyard? I mean, doesn't the master have a right to get what is due him? Shouldn't they have to pay for their occupation of, use of, and benefits from the vineyard? Like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we stop and think, doesn't this really resonate with each one of us? Have we never been tempted to desire something that wasn't ours? To take something, to think we deserve something, have a right to something that's not necessarily ours? Hasn't this been the problem from the beginning? All the way back to Adam and Eve, right? God placed them in his garden, gave them access to all of his resources, save one. And with just a little push, They began to act like owners. They took from what was not theirs, but was rightfully God's. And because of it, he put them out of his garden, right? They got confused about who was the owner there. And so they began to do as an owner would and take what they wanted. And so, listen, this was part of the first rebellion, assuming usage equals ownership. These two things are not the same. I'm going to show you uh, by a little illustration. How many of you, if I said, uh, and don't do it because we're Baptists, I don't want anybody to think we're Pentecostal, right? Raise your hand if you own a car. Many of you would raise your hand, right? If I said, how many of you own a house? Many of you would raise your hand. But if we push that question a little further, some of us would have to put our hand down. Why? Because we leased a car. Because we financed a car. Because we have a mortgage on our house. See, we don't own the car at all. We don't own the house at all. The bank does. Our lenders do. But we don't like to think like that, do we? It's my car. I can do with what I want to. I can add things to it. I can drive it where I want. It's my house. I can decorate it and use it how I want. But listen, who owns it? And if you have any questions, stop paying the note and see what happens. Right? See, we equate usage with ownership. And that is the first mistake that these men made. In the same way with these tenants, they are acting like they own the vineyard and all that goes with it, when in reality they have simply been leased usage privileges. So allegorically, how are we to see the situation Jesus paints with these religious leaders? I think it's pretty simple. God had created the nation of Israel and all of their spiritual privileges. They belong to him. He called them out of Egypt. We saw in our Isaiah 5 this morning, he called them out of Egypt and planted them and gave them everything they needed. This is represented in the work the master does before he leases it. He plants the vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He dug a wine wine press in it. He built a tower in it. Literally gave them everything they needed to be to be successful and to produce the wine from the vineyard, right? Everything they needed and protection and a way to look out over the vineyard. He gave them everything in a similar way. God had called Israel to himself. He had given them the law. He had given them the prophets. He had given them the tabernacle system. And all all of that had done was God's work establishing Israel as his people. He owned it all. But as you read the Old Testament, that is not the way they responded to God, is it? Time and time again, they acted as if they owned themselves and they could do in the temple what they wanted to do. They could do to each other what they wanted to do. And they equated the usage that God gave them with ownership. They began acting contrary to the call. And so this is what God did. He sent prophets to call them 
back to himself. He raised up judges to call them back to himself. And time and time again, they rejected and sometimes killed the prophets. So you're seeing the parable play out before you. They began acting like their religious and spiritual privileges were their own and not as belonging to God. This is what Jesus is condemning. They were failing to understand that they belonged to God that their religious system belonged to him, that he was working among them in men like John the Baptist and now Jesus, because they were so convinced of their ownership, they failed to recognize the actions of the true owner. He sent John the Baptist, he sent his son, and because they were so convinced that they owned the system, that they ruled the system, that they were the ones in charge, they failed to recognize when the owner acted. This is the parable. So what does this mean for us today? The church belongs to Jesus. All of our spiritual privileges and blessings ultimately belong to Christ. He is the obedient son. He is the one who kept the law. He is the living God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, right? It is Jesus that owns the church. But if you want to go further, he is the creator of it all. We live and breathe and work because he enables us to. But some of you are in danger of rejecting the kingdom of God because you feel like you own your life. That is to say, because you have been given usage privileges, as it were, that you are your own. The Bible says, especially for those that have come to saving knowledge of Christ and have been brought into the church, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ because you were purchased with a price. So if nothing else, Christians, you have to understand that you do not own yourself. You're owned by Christ and everything you has is his. But listen, even non-believers, even people that have not come to Christ, listen, the Bible also says that every man and woman will be brought before God to stand before him and give an account of the way that they spent their lives. If that doesn't imply ownership, I don't know what does. We will all stand before the rightful owner one day and give an account for how we spent what he gave us. And so listen, we reject the kingdom of God when we fail to understand who it all belongs to. That is the first failure, and that is what we see these men failing in. The second failure that leads to rejecting the kingdom is this. We reject the kingdom of God when we fail to receive its messengers. We reject the kingdom of God when we fail to receive its messengers. So in the parable, the, the, the house owner, the man owner, uh, the man, the owner of the house, sends servants uh, in the parable, they're clearly the prophets of God that God has sent to his people. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, men like John the Baptist, sent to call his people back to himself, to remind them of his ownership and call them to obedience. This was the call of the prophets. Come back to your rightful owner. Come back to obedience, right? John the Baptist came on the scene decrying, repent, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. A calling back to obedience, back to Jesus or God. And just like in the parable, the nation rejected prophet after prophet. Uh, we, we could go through all of the examples, but I believe Jesus sums it up later in Matthew 
when he laments over Jerusalem, this, the center of the nation of Israel, the heart. He says in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How patient is God pictured in this parable? He sends one servant. They reject him. He doesn't destroy them. He sends another servant. They reject that servant. He sends another servant. He continues to send delegation after delegation to call these tenants back into right relationship with himself. And listen, even after they rebel against him, Rather than destroying them, he sends another servant, seemingly willing to forgive their actions if they will repent and deliver to him what is rightfully his. And then after rounds and rounds and delegations of servants, we we recognize those as prophets. Until finally, the man sends his beloved son, saying, surely they will respect my son. And there's, there's, so I was looking at that word of what, what God says here they will do. There's, there's kind of two uh, shades of meaning. Either they will revere him because he is one of the rightful owners, or his presence will shame them into doing what is right. But as the story unfolds, we realize they didn't do either one of those things, did they? They see the air. They think now is the time to, to act upon our ownership. If we kill him, it will be ours. They, desiring to be free from the master of the house, once and for all, decide to kill the son as well. And is it hard to see the prophetic way Jesus is detailing what will happen in just four days, right? When he is seized and taken out of Jerusalem and put to death on a cross. When the religious leaders, those who God had given all the privileges of relationship with himself, rejected his son. Jesus is clearly identifying himself as the son of God. He is no ordinary prophet. He is no ordinary servant. He has a unique relationship to the father. This is one of the reasons the Bible says later that they wanted to take him now, but they were scared of the crowd. He was claiming to have a unique relationship with God, that he was the son. It is one thing to reject the servants. It's another to reject the son. And this is why Jesus now coming to the, the, the pinnacle of the story says this, what will the master do when he comes? You rejected servant after servant, but now, now you have put to death his son. So listen, I don't know what you were thinking, but the master is coming. And when he gets there, what is he going to do? And they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. In the original language, there's a play on words between wretch and miserable, but it's practically the same word. These evil men will be put to an evil death, or these miserable men will be put to a miserable death. What they're saying is their actions deserve punishment. Their actions deserve punishment. What is ironic is these religious men are condemning themselves. Because in a moment, they're going to see that Jesus, they're going to get it, and they're going to realize he's talking about them. And just like David before the prophet, when he says, when Nathan Nathan says, thou art the man, right? You're the one in the story that you just condemned. So Jesus leads into this question and says, what should happen? And they say they should be put to a miserable death. 
By rejecting the messenger of the kingdom, they were rejecting the kingdom itself. This is the message Jesus is giving them. So we think about all of the ways that God spoke to his people through the prophets and sending various prophets. The question becomes, how does God speak to us today? How does he call him us to himself? I want you to listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what is the implication for us today? It is the same that it was for these religious leaders. The father, like the man in the parable, has sent his last messenger, his one and only son. Reject him and there remains no further messenger. There is salvation in no other name, amen? God is still calling men and women to repent and respond to the Son. He was the final messenger, the final prophet that called men and women back to God. Listen, I want to tell you something, and you may be surprised. I have no prophetic message for you. I'm not a prophet. And listen, no one has a prophetic message from God for you. If someone says they do, run from that person. Because God has fully and finally spoke in the person of Jesus Christ. He's got nothing else to say. So my job is not to tell you something new. My job is to point to the Son. Your job is not to tell someone something new. It's to point to the Son. God sent His messenger who is the very image of him, right? I got a little excited. I'm going to try to get back to my notes. Anyone who gets the privilege to speak on behalf of the kingdom of God is to point to Christ as God's final message to the world. Here's why that's important. If you fail to respond to Jesus, there is no other way. This is what he declared to his disciples in just the coming days after this parable. John 14 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Reject Jesus and you reject the kingdom of God, period. Now, it's not a popular message, but that is a scriptural one. To reject the messenger, to fail to receive the messenger, is to reject the kingdom. And so we reject the kingdom when we fail to understand who it all belongs to. This is the first failure we looked at. We re- the second failure that leads to rejection is we reject the kingdom when we fail to receive its messenger. And the third and final failure this morning is we reject the kingdom of God when we fail to produce fruit in it. And by the end of this point, some of you are going to wish I stopped at number two. But the parable goes like the parable goes. Let's go back to it for a minute. They had everything they needed to produce fruit. Jesus, when he pulls this imagery, it's familiar to us because we just heard uh, it read this morning. Roger read Isaiah 5, 1 through 4, where the Lord is pictured as taking a vine out of Egypt and planting it in a vineyard and clearing the way and making a fence and, and guarding it and putting up a watchtower and digging a wine press and giving them everything they needed to produce fruit. But Isaiah, it goes on 
in Isaiah 5, 7, that says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so in case we're confused, Isaiah says, no, the vineyard is God's people, the, the kingdom, and the vine is his people. And so uh, this is what it says. God came looking for justice in his vineyard, but behold, bloodshed. He came looking for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The similarities between this prophetic word and Jesus's parable are obviously striking. God had given his people everything they needed to produce fruit. So what does he look for? What does he call fruit? The Bible says he looked for justice and he looked for righteousness. And these twin fruits may be summarized by right treatment of others and righteous acts. Essentially, he looked for an obedient people that reflected their God in their spiritual fruit, and rather, he found oppression and chaos. He came to his vineyard, the one that he had planted, and he had and hedged up, and he had given everything, and he expected to find good grapes. The Bible says he expected to find righteousness and justice. And what he found was the people had not produced fruit consistent with what God had provided for them. I mean, we get this, right? Like if we prepare the ground and we cultivate it and we plant good seed, we do not expect to come back to a poisonous fruit or thorns growing where we planted good seed, right? Because we gave it everything it needed to produce good fruit. So God says, I gave them everything. He actually says, what more could I have done? Judge between me and the house of Israel. What more could I have done? What more could I have given them? He says, and yet they produced rotten fruit. The people had failed to produce. This reminds me of another parable that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke. He tells this parable. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, this would be the tenant, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser said, sir, let it alone this year also, and I'll dig around it and put manure, I'll fertilize it, and then if it should bear fruit next year, good, but if not, then you can cut it down. The people had failed to produce the fruit God expected, and in his final effort, he sent his son so that they would bear the fruit of repentance. And Jesus now pronounces to these religious leaders because they have not produced the things of God. And since as a nation they had failed to produce it and now they were rejecting the son, God was going to take the kingdom from them and give it to those who would. See, the vineyard is not lost. God's purposes will not be thwarted. The vineyard is still a good vineyard. The people will be removed and supplanted by a new people composed of both Jew and Gentile alike. This is what Ephesians tells us when he says he, he breaks down the wall of hostility. He, he unites us in one body through the body of Christ, through the blood of Christ, right? One baptism, one faith. This is God bringing a people who are not a people into a people to supplement his people who failed to produce what God commanded. This is Jesus foretelling what will happen in the coming days. God is going to make a new people, a people that will produce his fruit, whether they are ethnically Jewish or ethnically Gentile. And this is what we see play out in the book of Acts, right? 
The church marches on, gathering in people from all different types of nations until the very end of the book, we see in Revelations them standing and there are men from every nation and tongue and area, right? It is a beautiful, diverse, full kingdom of all different kinds of people. This was the people God created when he says it will be taken from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Those who have the fruit of repentance and come into the kingdom by faith through grace. Now listen, here's where we have to understand as a people of God, God has given us everything we need to produce fruit. We are in the same position that they were in. He has removed our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He has indwelled us with his spirit. Ephesians goes on to say he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Notice all of the language about growth. To the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ so we no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has given us everything we need to grow, to produce fruit. What does the fruit look like? Well, Paul tells us the fruit, singular fruit of the Spirit is marked by things by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? These are the things that God looks for in His people because these are the things He has provided for us. What does God expect from those who have been given the kingdom that they will produce fruit marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Shortly before this parable, and this is so telling in the context of Scripture, shortly before this parable, on the same morning of it, on their way into Jerusalem to this encounter with the religious leaders we've been learning about for two weeks now, Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance. And it's beautiful. It's full of leaves. And he is hungry. And he says, a fig tree that is ripe and in season. And so he goes to it. And the Bible says he finds no fruit. He digs around in the tree and he finds only leaves. And so he curses it and it withers and dies. This was a prophetic act by Jesus paralleling what God would do to his people when they failed to produce fruit consistent with who they presented themselves to be. Let me ask you this question. What would Jesus find if he rooted around your life looking for fruit? Would he find it? Or would he find a bunch of leaves that look like you were fruitful? Maybe you had the appearance of it, but, but is there any fruit in your life? If we learn anything from this admonition to these religious leaders ought to be the danger of rejecting the kingdom of God by failing to produce its fruit. The Apostle Paul picks up on this warning in Romans 11. When he warns those in the church not to become proud, not to become arrogant, but to be reverent towards God who is able to graft in those who come to him through faith and remove those from his tree who lack it. The point is not to, is not to presume that you are 
in the kingdom because you are connected to the church in some way. Because you grew up in it, because your family is in it, because you visited it, that you were somehow part of it. What is the distinguishing factor for someone in the kingdom of God? The production of fruit. Indeed, Jesus says if you are connected to him, you will produce fruit, right? Those connected to the vine can't help but produce fruit. So the evidence of our connection to Jesus is the production of fruit. So could it be the lack of fruit in your life is evidence of your rejection of the kingdom of God? We began this morning asking the question, why does anyone reject the kingdom of God? We've looked at three failures that can contribute to its rejection. A failure to understand who it belongs to, and by that I mean all of it. A failure to receive its messenger, mainly the person and work of Jesus Christ. And finally, a failure to produce its fruit. As we close this morning, here's where I want us to kind of land this morning. How do you know if you have rejected or received the kingdom of God? How do you, how do you know where you stand? If Jesus came today, would he find you a faithful tenant or a rebellious one? How do you know? You just work yourself back through the questions. Have you come to understand that your life is not yours, that it belongs fully and finally to God? Have you received his messenger, Jesus Christ, and his call to repent and believe? And have you produced fruit consistent with someone who is in that kind of kingdom? If you answered yes to all those questions, praise God. Amen. May we have a church full of people that can say yes to all of those. But if you're unsure if these are true in your life, Ask God to reveal to you where you are practically rejecting the kingdom of God and give you the grace and mercy you need to humble yourself and come to him in faith. And if you are waiting, because there's always someone waiting, waiting for a sign, waiting to get their life right, waiting to, to a certain age or a certain situation, listen, I want you to hear me. The sun has come. The time is now. Today is the day of salvation. There is no further messenger. There is no further plan. God has sent his son. And listen, the master of the house is returning. And when he does, he will separate those that are his and those that have rejected him. This was the warning that went unheeded by these religious leaders. They continued in the rebellion. May it not go unheeded here this morning. Let us pray.